Friends, I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me and open to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Today we continue or actually conclude our series uh, in 1 Thessalonians that we have been calling the Ordinary Days. The Ordinary Days. The days when we celebrate the little things but look forward to the big things. The ordinary days are the days when we struggle sometimes, and other times things seem easy. Some of the ordinary days fly by, and sometimes an ordinary day, one day feels like seven. (laughs) During the ordinary days, we try to do the next right thing. We try to take care of our family, we try to enjoy our friends, we try to engage well in the work and the tasks that are before us. And in the ordinary days for Christians, we try to be faithful to God because he loves us so much and we want to try to adequately express our love for him. As we come to the close of this book, we've seen some of those things that happen in the ordinary days throughout 1 Thessalonians. And we've seen so many more that are part of the ordinary Christian life. And at the end of the book, as is common to so many New Testament letters, the Apostle Paul concludes with a string of exhortations or commands. It's almost as if he's woven together this beautiful tapestry of ideas and now he gets to the end like we often do when we're concluding a conversation with someone and we say, well, don't forget about this and and, and make sure to remember this and and, and don't, don't let this one pass you by. And he gives a string of commands in this way and they feel like as you read them, just that. Boom, 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 boom. But in all actuality, he's giving us exhortations about three different types of relationships that we have in this life and how our approach or disposition in these relationships point to our spiritual growth during the ordinary days. So let's read them together, shall we? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 12 through the end of the book. This is what it says. It says, We ask you, brothers... To respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us 
Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under an oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There are three different types of relationships that the Apostle Paul addresses in the conclusion of the letter. And by addressing these relationships, he gives a number of commands, and I think what he's trying to get at is a disposition that we're supposed to have in these types of relationships. A disposition is your prevailing mood or attitude. A disposition is your prevailing approach, which informs your actions. He tells us to have a certain disposition toward our leaders, toward each other, and toward the Lord himself. Those are the three relationships he's talking about. So let's look at the first one. This first relationship in verses 12 to 13, we see a disposition toward Christian leaders. And here he describes Christian leaders as people who are hardworking, people who are over you, and people who admonish you. In the Lord, three points of description. The first one of those is hard working. And I think who he's primarily referring to here by way of Christian leaders are those who serve as pastors or elders, probably those who serve as deacons and caring for the community of faith. But I think beyond that, you could probably apply the description here to anybody who is in, in Christian leadership in such a fashion that they are sacrificing for themselves to serve the Lord by serving others. And he describes them as hardworking. I want you to know, friends, that your leaders here work really hard. I hope you know that. I've been in meetings with our elders where we're talking about complicated, complex, complicated issues in people's lives. And where the men in that room are thinking carefully together about how to help the people at Old North broadly grow in faithfulness. And specifically in different areas and different situations. I've seen them pray for you. And pray over you for hours. Sometimes in tears asking God, pleading with God to continue his miraculous work and his life-changing work in you. I've seen the pastors of our church carefully deliberate together about how to help someone in need or to chase after someone who has been disengaging or rebuking someone who's turned from the Lord. I've seen them labor over their preparation in teaching, whether that's in Wednesday night small group studies or the classrooms back here on Sunday morning or even as they approach the pulpit. These pastors are people who spend their time, their breakfasts, their lunches, their dinners with many of you <laughs> to work for you and with you. I've seen them light up with joy as spiritual breakthrough has happened as repentance has been given, as somebody starts to use their gifts or skills or abilities for the very first time, or somebody that we've been praying for and talking about or talking to has put their faith in Jesus for the first time. I've seen them spend time away from their families to spend time with people in the church. When many of us watch TV at night or are at the ball field with our kids, often they're laboring 
for the Lord and for you. And I've seen one of the practical difficulties that many of them face, and it's a difficulty that I've faced off and on over the years as well. And it seems like a small thing, but it adds up to be kind of a big thing. And that is, you don't appreciate what a normal weekend is really like until it's gone for you. Two days off in a row with your kids home and your wife not working. And it seems like a little thing. But man, I tell you what, you begin to appreciate that when it's gone. Now, I don't say these things about your elders or your pastors or any of the Sunday school teachers who get here early and stay late or come to small groups on Wednesday nights and prepare the other evenings of the week in advance of that. I don't, I don't say that in any way for you to pity them. They've chosen this. They wouldn't trade this. They love it. But I say it so that you know how hard they work among you. And they do this because, as the next description of a Christian leader shows, uh, they have responsibility over you. Now, to hear that somebody is over you might immediately have a connotation for some of us that they're superior to us. They're over us. They're superior to us. That's not what's happening here. This word to be over somebody is the word that is used often to describe guardians of a community or people who govern a community or people who protect a community. That is part of the nature of a Christian leader. And they do that as well in the third description and that is how they admonish you. Christian leaders admonish you. Admonishing is not the simple conveyance of information. Your pastors and elders and other leaders in the church don't just tell you more about God, though that is part of what they do. Admonishing someone is giving advice, exhortation, encouragement, and correction to help change the conduct of a person. Now, we live in a time today where personal correction is fallen on really hard times in most spheres. And yet, when you look at the best leaders in the world, when you look at the best athletes in professional sports, personal correction or even admonishment is something that they crave, something that they desire. It's interesting how in our time, even in the church, even for people who express a desire to grow in the things of God, that the idea of correction has almost become anathema in the church today. But personal correction throughout history has been profitable for parents who guide their children, for leaders who guide nations, and for Christian leaders who guide communities. In fact, we see that in the Bible again and again. Here's just a couple of examples. Acts chapter 20, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, and is speaking of his example. He says, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Admonishment is talked about in a different way in Christian communities in Colossians chapter 1. Verse 28, it says, Him we proclaim, that's Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Warning and teaching lead to maturity. Teachability, of course, is such an important aspect of receiving admonishment, isn't it? 
Someone can help guide us, whether either by way of encouragement or correction, but if we are not teachable to receive it, well, then it falls often on deaf ears. And you know what teachability looks like in somebody else, and you know what it looks like when somebody isn't teachable, well, at least somebody else. Because I think a lot of people like the idea of being teachable, but when it really comes to receiving admonishment, that's where the rubber meets the road. There's a difference between the idea of being teachable and actually being teachable. I think of uh, a segment of our society which has been rapidly growing over the last eight or nine years. It's in the apparel market. It's for a section of apparel called athleisure. Have you heard of this? Athleisure is workout clothes for people who don't work out. And it's one of the fastest growing segments of the clothing market today. Between the years of 2009 and 2014, this segment of the industry grew 5% every single year from $54 billion a year to $68 billion. The trend accounted for nearly all growth in apparel, footwear, accessories of that sector. People in major American cities of high fashion would wear athleisure apparel to work. Brands like Lululemon and Lucy and Lorna Jane and Gap Body and Athleta and Nike, they'd even wear it to the office. And according to an article in the New York Times, the market was moving very quickly toward $100 billion a year. But there's a strange twist in this growth of athleisure. Most people are just wearing it, but not actually working out. The same article concludes that for many wearers, the athletic part of athleisure remains aspirational. For example, sales of yoga clothing has increased 10 times as much as actual participation in yoga. Apparently we like the look of working out, but we just don't like out the don't like the workout lifestyle that goes with it. There's so many people, here's the correlation, there's so many people that like the look of teachability. I want to be a teachable person. But when it actually comes to receiving admonishment, that teachability goes by the wayside rather quickly. Don't fake being teachable. Actually be teachable. Because as Paul says, these people who the Lord has put over us, our spiritual leaders, we're to have a disposition toward them. He says that we are to respect them and highly esteem them, not out of obligation, but in love, because of their work. Did you catch that last part? Highly esteem them in love because of their work. Not because they look a certain way or because they have a certain type of disposition or friendliness, but because of what they do. We esteem them. And that's the first type of relationship he addresses. The second type of relationship he addresses is our disposition, our prevailing attitude toward one another. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. He says, we urge you, therefore, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, 
be patient with them all and see to it that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Although leaders played an important role in making sure the Christian community, as we saw in verse 12, is functioning well, this does not fall as their responsibility alone. It's the members of a local Christian community. It's the members of a church that share in the mutual responsibility of building one another up in the faith. Ephesians 4, 6, Paul talks about this, and we see it all throughout the New Testament, that the whole gathering of Christians together have responsibility for each other. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is talking about the Christian family being a body, and he says, this whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So all of us have this instruction toward each other, a disposition toward each other. And he says to admonish the idle. Idle might be people who are lazy. Often it's people who are uh, in the Christian community but not following the teaching of the apostles. He says to help the weak. Help the weak. The weak are perhaps the sick or those of low social status, those who genuinely cannot help themselves. In the first century, this is probably people like freed slaves or people who had limited ability because of low social restriction. Weakness was not a virtue in Greek society. And weakness is not a virtue in our society. But for those that society puts down, Paul says the church is to lift up, to come alongside, and to give support. Help the weak. He says in verse 15, see to it that no one repays evil for evil, but seek to do good to each other. That's another way to say, don't seek vengeance against each other when you sin against each other. This is natural human response, isn't it? When somebody hurts me, I'm going to hurt them more. This is the response that you see in your kids. When somebody takes something from one kid, the next child hits them. Well, at least in my family. But Paul says, do not take vengeance. Proverbs 25 gives us some good advice on this. It says, if your enemy is hungry, if your enemy is hungry, i.e., if the person who has done ill toward you is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The writer can say that because, of course, burning coals, it's not actual burning coals. It's a descriptor to say, if you wait for the Lord to exact his justice, for vengeance to be his, if you repay evil deeds with kind deeds, that magnifies the nature of the evil and it magnifies the nature of the kindness, all to the glory of God. Do not seek vengeance on each other. But I want to focus a little bit more on one of those particular commands. He says in verse 14, encourage the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted. Faint-hearted people are the people who are timid or discouraged. People who are in danger 
of giving up. At one time or another, probably every one of us has been faint-hearted in our faith in the Lord. There's a lot of reasons how a person can get to that place. Perhaps it's personal suffering or physical suffering. Perhaps it's grief that is caused by the death of a loved one. Perhaps it's broken relationships, either in your family or in the church itself. Perhaps it's a lack of friends. Some people get faith heart, faint-hearted in pursuing the Lord because they don't feel like they have anybody to pursue the Lord with. And the responsibility for all of us is to look out for the faint-hearted and to encourage them, to come alongside of them. And he says this, Paul can say this, because as we see again and again and again in the New Testament, if the goal of the Christian life from our perspective is persevering to the end, we see that perseverance of the saints is absolutely a community project. That it is incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to persevere in your faith, to finish the race, to win the fight, (laughs) without other people. And we all know that to be true. Because we've been in the place of being faint-hearted ourselves. You know, I never see, uh, I I never grow tired of seeing images of professional athletes or Olympic competitors helping each other when they should be competing against each other, uh, particularly in races after someone gets injured. You probably have seen plenty of pictures or videos. You've seen the video of the dad who runs out of the stands to help his son limp across the finish line with his busted up ankle. Or you've seen uh, a racer help another racer get to the end because they're both out of it, but there's a sense in which we need to finish this together. And I'm here for you to finish it with you. This happened in Rio de Janeiro 2016 Olympics. Uh, American uh, runner named Abby Dignastino and a New Zealand runner named Nikki Hamblin collided 3,200 meters into a 5,000 meter race. The collision happened after the the runner from New Zealand stumbled while she was trying to avoid hitting another runner, and the American runner crashed into the back of her, and they both went down onto the track. And the American runner, Dignostino, rose first. And rather than just continuing the race on, she stopped to help Hamblin because she saw that she was clearly in distress. So she stopped to help her get up. And as they both continued the race, the American runner, Dignostino, had her knee buckle on her twice, and she then tumbled to the ground. And this time it was Hamlin's turn to help her get up because they both needed to finish the race. And eventually they did. The point is that we need each other. We need each other. And when there are those among us who are faint-hearted, it is our responsibility to encourage them. The first type of relationship or disposition we have is toward our leaders. The second type of relationship that we look at our disposition is toward each other. The third that we see in this text is our disposition toward the Lord himself. Look at it with me in verse 16 and on. 
He says a string of commands, and these are all related to our relationship to God. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test everything, and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The marks of the Christian in verse 16, 17, and 18 are defined as a Christian is somebody who has joy, verse 16, who is rejoicing, has joy, verse 16, verse 17, prayer, and verse 18, gratitude. Christian joy, rooted in the gospel, is infused with hope, and it grows, it grows in relationship with the Lord. A society that is ripe with pessimism and lacks hope generally is the society of the first century in Greece. It's the society that we live in today. And Paul says that this society, as we know, finds its ultimate answer in salvation from God through Jesus Christ. And this produces in those who know him joy. Never underestimate the power and witness of true Christian joy. A lot of you ask yourself the question or ask each other the question, I'm talking to my friend or my neighbor or my colleague who doesn't know Jesus. How can I help them understand? How can I attract them to the gospel? One of the most powerful pieces of attraction is Christian joy. Christian joy is, I believe, the most attractive evangelism strategy there is. Because people will look at what you have and they will recognize in themselves that they don't have it and there's something irresistible about it. And so, Colossians chapter 1, verse 10 and 11 says, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He also commands these Christians not to quench the spirit nor despise prophecies, but to test what is good and to hold fast what is true. We could have a long conversation about quenching the spirit and despising prophecies. And what does that mean for us today? but we have not the time for it. When it comes to quenching the spirit, author Graham Cole describes quenching the spirit in a very helpful and succinct manner. He says, quenching the spirit is the sin of the insider. It's the sin of the Christian. And it is to despise the word of God. Disregarding how the word is engaging our conscience is an example of such quenching. John Calvin taught that we engage with God through word and through spirit. And so when God's word is proclaimed, whether that's through the reading of the scripture, whether that's through the preaching of the scripture, whether it's through your personal study or reading at home, and the spirit is convicting your conscience of something, pushing the spirit away is a description, one description of quenching that spirit. And so let's pull all these things together. A disposition toward other people, a disposition toward our leaders, a disposition toward God. 
It's as if Paul is describing a type of person. A type of person that is growing in a humble disposition or has a humble growth in their disposition that reflects the work of God in their life. Your disposition, remember, is your prevailing tendencies, your prevailing emotions, your prevailing mood and approach that informs the way that you live. It informs the way that you act. It informs the way that you engage in relationship. Let your humble growth in disposition reflect God's work in your life. Let your humble growth in disposition reflect God's work in your life. I wonder if that's happening in your life. Are you growing in your disposition? Because what he's trying to capture here, I believe what he does capture here is some of the most ordinary relationships that we have. Our leaders, other people, the Lord, these are the ordinary days of the Christian life. Let humble growth in that disposition reflect God's work in your life. And you can do that, friends, and have confidence that God will indeed grow you in those things. And that's where we conclude. We have this great crescendo at the end of the letter. We don't want to pass it by. We conclude with verses 23 to 24 that we've been talking about what you do, what you do, do this, do this, and then do this, and now you get to hear about what God does. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. A couple of observations. That God, the God of peace himself does these things. That you do, you do, you do, but the God of peace himself accomplishes the sanctifying work in you. He grows you in holiness. He moves you toward ultimate perfection. And we see that this growth and sanctification that God is doing in you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is to the entire being, the spirit, the soul, and the body, he says. We'd have a wonderful conversation about whether or not the essence of you is made up of two pieces or three pieces. And yet, what he's trying to get to here is that every single ounce of you will be made blameless at the second coming of Jesus. All the nooks and crannies of you, every single bit will be brought into perfection at his coming. Now that is really good news because every ounce of you was infected by sin. All of the nooks and crannies of your being, of your essence, of your body and your soul and your spirit, all of it has tasted the wretchedness of sin and been changed by it. But the power of the cross of Jesus Christ, the nature of the gospel, is that God takes the people that are far off and infected and disgusting by the nature of their sin and brings them all the way back, every ounce of them, into complete and final perfection at the coming of Jesus. 
That's the power of the cross, friends. That is the great news of the gospel. That is what you get to look forward to on the day of his coming. And we see here that in this just short couple of phrases that this sanctification is made complete at his coming. That the apostles' desire is that God will sanctify you through and through, all the way through who you are. Your sanctification, your moral sanctification, is the principal concern of this letter. We've talked about that again and again. And in chapter 4, verse 3, even says, this is the will of God for your life. Your sanctification. And now we see that God will accomplish this will through and through, entirely in you, so that the end goal of your salvation is completely accomplished because God is faithful. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it all the way to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you may endure it. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Amen. So let your humble growth in disposition reflect that work of God in your life. Let your humble growth and disposition reflect God's work in your life. I wonder if you've ever been to the grand opening of a magnificent building. Maybe a skyscraper or a cathedral or even a majestic home of sorts. You've seen these construction projects probably from a distance. You see how they wrap the building they put scaffolding up around it. They put tarps down so nobody can peer in and see what's happening. It's a shroud <laughs> for those on the outside who would like to look in. And those who are on the inside who are working, the skilled laborers, go in to find out that different sections of the building are cordoned off from others. And they work in one section for a while, crafting and honing, the thing that needs to be accomplished, and then they move to another section after that, and they work in that section for a while, and they continue day in and day out, addressing the different needs to bring this thing toward its completion. But all the while, they're in the building, it's shrouded from the outside, and they see just segments of it as it's starting to come together. But then, there's a grand opening 
a majestic unveiling. It's an unveiling in which people from the outside and people from the inside see how all of the different parts of this project come together. They saw pieces. They worked on parts. But now, as they stand back and they see it all come together in all of its magnificence and its glory, they say, ah, I understand now what was happening there is going to be a grand unveiling someday. At the return of Jesus, and the grand unveiling is going to be you. That all of the parts, all of the commands, all of the pieces of your life that are refining, the fact that your disposition is changing, the fact that your desires are growing for the Lord and for his work and his ways, the fact that you're experiencing victory over sin in ways that you didn't experience that before, the fact that you are repurposing your efforts in your life, all of these little things that you are working on and that God is working in you will all come together and be seen in the grand unveiling of your complete and final sanctification. And in the meantime, let your humble growth in these parts and pieces, in this disposition, reflect God's work in you. Please pray with me. Father God, you're faithful. We trust you to do the things that we cannot do, to make us into the people that we cannot become of our own, to grow us in faith and faithfulness. And we pray that you would continue to affect our disposition in relationships to that end. We thank you for your word that's compelling and clear. We pray that you would give us a sense of perseverance as we try to enact these practical commands for these relationships, that our effort would indeed match our best effort. And even when we fail, we know, Father, that you are faithful and that you will do it. We long for the day of Jesus and for the grand unveiling. Amen.